0: bipolar disorder is becoming more and more common, and there are multiple medications that are FDA-approved to treat it. How do you know which ones to use and when? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Christina Demopoulos, who recently relocated to the West Coast from the Bipolar Research Program at Massachusetts General Hospital. She now works at the Center for Anxiety and Depression in Mercer Island, Washington. Welcome. Thank you. Tina, there are so many treatments for bipolar disorder now. How do you know where to start?
1: Oh, it, it can be a difficult maze to walk. And, you know, it really is an issue of, again, one, making the correct diagnosis. Two, it may be that you have to evaluate a patient over time uh, because, again, this is an episodic illness, and sometimes one slice in time may not be enough to gather the information you need and also. Remember, it's important to have someone else there as a historian so they can help add to the longitudinal perspective to make the correct diagnosis. Mm-hmm.
0: I assume your, your medication choice must depend somewhat on whether you see them manic or you see them depressed? Absolutely.
1: Certainly, we have many agents that can treat the manic phase of illness, lithium being your gold standard in terms of anti-manic agent, and if patients present with psychotic symptoms quite often clinicians will move to use atypical antipsychotics initially to effectively control psychotic symptoms and reduce mania quickly. However, in patients that are bipolar-depressed, this is probably the biggest treatment challenge for clinicians, and the biggest uh, research challenge for, for bipolar researchers is better treatments for bipolar depression and safe treatments so that we don't induce cycle acceleration increased mood episodes.
0: Tina, you were involved in the huge NIMH trial uh, called STEP-BD. Can you tell us about that? Sure.
1: STEP-BD is the largest naturalistic trial, and under that naturalistic umbrella are particular randomized treatments. To answer various questions about uh, bipolar demographics, bipolar course, effective treatment modalities, And in the study, we really tried to generate treatment pathways coming to a consensus about what we viewed would be the model pathways for patients to follow in terms of treatment plan and also really to model a specialty clinic to develop treatment and diagnostic practices that reflect state-of-the-art bipolar uh, treatment.
0: So if you're a primary care physician in, let's say, Mercer Island, Washington, (laughs) and you have a patient presenting. You can't get them into a psychiatrist today or tomorrow. What advice would you give to them? Where do they start?
1: Primary care doctors or general psychiatrists will have varying comfort levels about uh, when to make an intervention treat uh, and when to refer. So I think on a Severe mood episode, classic manic psychotic depressive realm, you know, people may go to more acute urgent care centers, or they may be uh, referred to a bipolar expert if they have accessibility, and that is a big issue. There are ways to work in collaboration, either consultation with experts, or be able to access uh, expert treatment guidelines. So there are consensus panels in the bipolar research realm that really look at if a patient has X presentation, what would be the expert consensus on treatment of choice for that patient?
0: Where can doctors access that?
1: Uh, They can access that online. Certainly, the American Journal of Psychiatry every year puts out treatment guidelines. In our Step BD program, uh, we have a a website. It's manicdepressive.org. And there you can also gather information around treatment guidelines, psychoeducation, uh, screening tools uh, for clinicians, and mood charts for patients. So it's a pretty comprehensive website and and very helpful for my patients.
0: So in general, it sounds like you might go with an antipsychotic for a patient who is in an acute manic phase or possibly... uh, It has a psychotic component. Uh, When might you choose lithium? When might you choose an anticonvulsant?
1: Well, certainly if there's a a mania, a moderate mania that can be managed outpatient lithium, maybe the treatment of choice. Don't forget, uh, familial responsivity, too, can be very important in guiding treatment. If a patient presents manic and they have a family history of lithium response, that would guide me to treat a patient with lithium versus def coat, for example, Certainly, Depakote uh, can be a great agent in treatment of rapid cycling, mixed states, people who uh, present for manic, or uh, Lamictal, again, mood stabilizer from below, a great option in bipolar depression. There is some data that suggests that it's helpful in acute bipolar depression, no question, but has, again, the FDA education for reducing depressive relapse, and particularly in bipolar 2. So... Those would be treatment modalities that guide your decision-making based on, on phase of illness. Um, there is good data actually out of STEP when we looked at, uh, at prescribing practices of STEP clinicians. So These are physicians involved in the STEP program that lithium combined with Lamictal seems to be a favorable strategy for mood stabilization. Again, lithium targeting the mood elevation symptoms and lamictal targeting depressive mm-hmm. symptoms, and a very clean combination without major drug drug interaction.
0: If you've just joined us, you're listening to Reach MD XM 233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunch, your host, and with me today is Dr. Christina Demopoulos. We are discussing the treatment options for bipolar disorder. Now, Dr. Demopoulos, I've heard you also speak about innovative therapies. Could you describe those for us?
1: Oh, certainly therapies uh, really involve more open trial data, small case report data, small controlled trials. For example, Dr. Perlis from MGH has uh, reported data on the use of mirapax or permuttaxel for bipolar depression. In rapid cycling, we've also used precursor therapies or what would be considered more complementary uh, medicine adjunctively, like omega-3 fatty acids for treatment of bipolar mania and bipolar depression, actually, as an adjunctive mood stabilizer. Also, the use of choline bitartrate, inositol, for adjunctive treatment of bipolar disorder, and agents like SAMe used for treatment of depression. There's also been studies looking at St. John's Wort for treatment of depression, though there have been reports um, with St. John's Wort of um, mania induction. So we do have to be careful in these realms. These are rather exploratory realms. And um, again, these are not first-line stabilizers. Uh, These are adjunctive agents that are used in combination with your first-line treatment.
0: And what's the theory behind using mirapex in bipolar disorder?
1: Well, the thought that uh, dopamine, increased dopamine agonism, may actually help reduce depressive symptoms, help cognitively with bipolar uh, depression Certainly, there's more evidence to suggest, uh, neuropsychiatric evidence and neuroimaging evidence to suggest at baseline, even not only in depression, but in ethymia, that bipolar patients have cognitive deficits.
0: Wouldn't you worry with increasing dopamine about patients getting psychotic, though?
1: In these small studies, that hasn't been an issue. But certainly, you're right. Pharmacologically, you could be at risk for, or a patient could be at risk for having a manic induction or psychotic symptoms, but again, I mean these are used adjunctively with usually for multiple first-line mood stabilizers because when we get to the point of innovative therapies, most people are on combination treatment.
0: Well, it sounds like to me the omega-3 fatty acids—that's that, a no-brainer.
1: That gives you many benefits. So, uh, in terms of cardiac, right, cardiac benefits, mood stabilization benefits. And there has been some early data and ongoing studies looking at the benefit of omega-3s actually in pregnancy. So what do we have for for bipolar women who really uh, worry about exposure of their unborn child to bipolar agents, and this may be a very safe alternative.
0: I'm glad you brought that up. I, I think we often don't think about that. But when you're evaluating a bipolar a female who is of childbearing age, how does that play into your medication choice?
1: Oh, that's a very good and complicated issue, uh, and it really, really lies in the comfort level of the patient. You know, is it useful to talk statistics? Is it useful to go through the numbers, I think it's going to come down to that patient's comfort level. You encourage them to inform themselves as much as possible and bring questions to you. Certainly, I think that most clinicians would agree that if there's a way to minimize psychotropic exposure in the first trimester during uh, neurogenesis and organogenesis and fetal development, that would be the goal. But again, that's weighed against the risk of mood destabilization because a manic pregnant patient can be quite a threat to herself and her child. So it really is a matter of looking at patient history and, and risk regarding severity of mood episodes and, uh, again, looking at various agents and their risk of fetal complications and again, minimizing exposure, particularly in the first trimester.
0: Is there one that you might not use under any circumstance?
1: Uh, yes, there are there are relative risks that are greater for certain agents versus others. Uh, certainly, Depakote may have a greater risk around neural tube defects and and tegrotol, craniofacial abnormalities. Lithium with cardiac complication of Epstein's anomaly. But I think the nice thing is is that we we're really getting more data looking at patients who have been maintained on, on lithium or have been maintained, for example, on lumixil and generating registries uh, to look at outcomes. And I think um, in monotherapy, so you don't have the confounded drug-drug interaction and really seeing how these agents affect mom and child. So, yeah, I, I, I think that most of these agents are all going to be considered category C Uh, with the exception of probably Welbutrin, Category B. But the larger the registries, monotherapy registries, the more power to detect differences, the more we can be assured that that the, the relative risks are low or not.
0: Dr. Demopoulos, we've been talking as if bipolar disorder occurs in a vacuum. Um, do patients just have bipolar disorder, or do they tend to have more than one disorder? I think I know the answer. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Eureka! <laughs> um, look, I, I absolute, bipolar disorder is, is not an, an entity unto itself. If you have a bipolar patient, someone has a bipolar patient, walk through the door. They better be asking about comorbidity because at a conservative estimate, uh, 9 out of 10 bipolar patients will have a comorbid illness. Wow. In some studies, it will be um, 100% will have comorbidity, and and frequently really more than one. Uh, Some studies suggest 90% of folks will have 2 to 3 comorbid illnesses. So comorbidity is is the rule, not the exception bipolar disorder. So you
0: better look for it. That's right. I want to thank our guest today, Dr. Christina Dimopoulos. We've been discussing the treatment of bipolar disorder. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com.
1: Thank you for listening.